food, as we know, I'm preaching to the choir, brings people together, it creates memories, it's 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 an incredible bonding. We do it like basically all day, every day, you know. Um, and I thought this is what this is my mission. I'm gonna use food to talk about design and just kind of open up the whole thing, make it make it feel like non-intimidating. Welcome to the catch-up. Introducing your hosts, Eli Aruth, editor-in-chief, and Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously, of the craziest, most bestest, news-breaking, food-porn-peddling, viral website on the dot-coms, It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy! There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. Alright, and welcome to the catch-up. I have an amazing intro, like I usually do every week. It's fantastic. You ready? I like your intro. I, I don't. I think you were being somewhat facetious, but I like your intros. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it. This is the intro, by the way. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And we've lost it. It's already <laughs> off the rails. Welcome back. This is the most ice cream heavy month on the podcast we've accidentally ever had. True. Like, I did not know it was even ice cream month. It's I ice did. cream day today. Shut up. Yeah. Really? National ice cream day. Okay. Yeah. So good That's news. I'm here. I mean. <laughs> yeah, we definitely <laughs> planned that. <laughs> we super planned that. But so the last couple of weeks we've talked to... CVT soft serve, which is the truck that's now charging influencers double. We talked with Andy Nguyen from the streetwear inspired afters ice cream chain. We talked with JT of a chain called Hug Life, the entirely vegan ice cream concept. And now we got the OG on the block. OG. The right. OG, a literal architect of a wild ice cream brand. We have Natasha Case, the founder and CEO of Cool House Ice Cream. I've always known Cool House is kind of the OG artisan ice cream sandwich people. And now they have like a wild line of pints and everything that you can imagine in ice cream form. You guys started as a food truck over a decade ago. And today their ice cream is available in over 6,000 grocery stores across the world. Places like Whole Foods, Safeway, Publix. You guys have trucks in SoCal, Dallas, New York. You're also a published author. Crazy. Natasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Was that so good? So much. That was a great intro. Welcome, right. welcome. Yeah. And and they have shops in... We have a scoop shop in Culver City. Culver City mm. and Dallas. Dallas. I also uh, have co- uh, co-hosted a podcast called Start to Sale. Okay. What? On Vox slash Eater. Sorry, I kind of know. <laughs> no, I like, we love Eater. They were on the podcast. Uh, it great. And it's actually 7,500 stores now. I'm like, oh, I got to tell PR to update that. Yeah. Yeah, so, you got to update yeah, the website. It was like, that was great. Like, I, I loved it. I enjoyed listening to it. Yo, strangely <laughs> enough, I actually uh, went to a talk that you had over 10 years ago. Wow. It was at UC Irvine. You were on a panel with some other really big heavy hitters, like huge heavy hitters. And you were like year one in your business. Heavy hitters meaning, I think like a president of TGI Fridays was there. There totally. was you. I remember that. I, wow, you were there. I was there. Amazing. Yeah. Good to see you again. It's good to see you. <laughs> we're basically best friends. We're just reunited, which is great. I think the cool thing about Cool House and Food Beast is that we started at the same time. So at the same time, I think you were growing your business, we were growing ours. And so 
we've been aware of almost every step Cool House has taken, and it's you know they're not, we're in different industries, but like it feels like every time there's been a step for Cool House, like we've had something on the food side that we're excited to take a step with too, and so. I don't know. I've seen that's what I've lived with like Cool House being that oh the br- the brand that I know that I eat that's started around when I started my project and yeah. that's kind of like Amazing. the cool nuance to have you on the pod. Well, I'm so glad to be here. It's a, it's like a parallel universe of exciting things. And a decade is like a real legit thing, you know? Like Heck a decade yeah. is such a marker of really like becoming a household kind of name brand taking things to the next level so congrats congrats to you guys likewise i mean so 10 years ago uh you had barely been a year in business what were you doing before cool house though i don't yeah i don't remember i don't remember (laughs) so uh, my background is architecture so i i'm a trained architect uh, undergrad UC Berkeley and then UCLA for grad school. And I, while I was a student, I became really intrigued with the idea of um, just how to make architecture more fun and accessible and digestible. So I love puns. So <laughs> I had this light bulb moment actually that I discovered what led me where I am now, you know, kind of by accident, which is how so many great things happens that they're accidents. A professor of mine in studio criticized a scale model I had made saying it looked like a layer cake. And I was like, why is that bad? Layer cakes are delicious. <laughs> yeah. So I baked the next iteration of the model as a cake. And it was my only all-nighter in all of architecture school, uh, which is another story. And I, I, and that's because I had so much fun making it, like working with food. I, I knew I would never be bored of it. And when I presented it to my colleagues, I could just see such a different like level of interest and spark. You know, when she's done yapping about the project, do we get to eat the cake? It's memorable. You know, <laughs> right. food, as we know, I'm preaching to the choir, brings people together. It creates memories. It's, it's, it's an incredible bonding. We do it like basically all day, every day, you know? Um, and I thought, this is what, this is my mission. I'm going to use food to talk about design and just kind of open up the whole thing, make it, make it feel like non-intimidating. And I just continued that uh, philosophical idea concept through grad school. And then um, my first real job was Disney Imagineering. We were just what? talking about Disney before this. Because yeah. It's basically right down, down the street. Uh, and uh, I was, you know, Imagineering, if for those who don't know, they're, um, they're famous for uh, the, the theme park ride design and also that just you know the whole like I was on hotels and master planning so the whole world around the theme parks and uh, I was there for um, a few months I started in June 2008 so not long after that the recession Oof. So as part of my food meets architecture concept, which I was by now calling Farkitecture, started baking cookies, making ice cream from scratch, naming the combinations after architects, Mies Vanilla Row, Frank Berry, Minimalism, And it was really just meant to like lighten the mood of the office. Yeah. Was, thank you for that. You guys are. So that was at, Di- at Disney. Isn't yeah. that like an ideal job for an engineer, an architect? Isn't it was amazing? great. And I, I kind of equate it to um, the way for, I think, a lot of text startup like founders uh you work at like a google or you know one of the big one of the behemoth companies and you kind of cut your teeth in terms of how it all works and and the the big learnings and how to build teams and you know like 
there's so many resources there. And then you break out into your own thing. And for me, Disney was that for storytelling and brand building. They mm-hmm. are the master architects of creating stories and legends that we love our entire lives. So I think it was a great place to like get a foundation to to really see that like in the flesh. Um, but ultimately, I can see now I was so much more meant for the kind of growing the kind of business business and brand that I am today. Um, but yeah, I was making those crazy ice cream sandwiches and just, it was a hobby. It was for friends at work, like, like light in the mood. Things are getting dark. A lot of people are getting laid off. And I met the other founder of Cool House, Freya Streller. Like I'd been doing this two weeks and she saw the business potential and, you know, we teamed up and, um, basically decided that it was the, there was a, a parting of the clouds. It was time to do something really big in ice cream. And we also became romantically involved. So there was a lot well, of things happening. At okay. Once. <laughs> let's, let's unpack. Cause so you're, it's you're at Disney. Where, so you met her at work or outside of work? I met her outside of work. Uh, I had gone to Berkeley, but I had studied abroad in Italy where I heavily studied gelato. <laughs> me later on uh 20 pounds worth of my body weight of gelato um and uh i i had studied abroad with cornell in rome and freya went to cornell in domestically upstate new york and we had a mutual friend that i had lived in italy with that was friends with her from college and she connected us actually but not under romantic auspices just as friends yeah. but then we ended up you know taking it in a different direction at what point were you <laughs> considering Leaving Dating your men. job. Pray <laughs> 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 tell. <laughs> At what point were, were did you leave Disney? And was that when the idea sparked? Was that a year or two later yeah. as you kind of experimented with Cool House? Like, when did that happen for you? Well, I would like to say that it was a choice, you know, that there was this booing business and I, it was time to move on from Disney, but it was not the case. I, too, became uh, essentially somewhat of a victim of the layoffs. It was basically like a hiring freeze. So mm. I, it, I didn't end up um, getting like put onto, you know, one of the teams in a more um, like long term capacity. So um, then it was that wasn't going to happen. And uh, I had I found another kind of gig um, to kind of get me through after that, which was a design trade show. And I did like sales and marketing for them, selling um, the spaces to uh, you know design brands, furniture brands for this trade show. That went bankrupt. That oh trade show. My God. So, but by then, Cool House had kind of been like happening in the background. We had worked on the product more. We had um, taken an ice cream truck to Coachella, which I could, you know, tell you all about. So there, it was. There was something there, and it was. It, it really went viral after Coachella. So basically, when that trade show, like we had our big event day, and then it was like clear it was just not going to come back. Yeah. I pretty much said, okay, well, I think this is the the universe is telling me like time to focus on Cool House. Time to really make this a thing. So what was the first product that you made? Um, first one ever, I mean, the early, early ice cream sandwich lineup, um, maybe it could have been the Dirty Mint, but it was the early lineup was double chocolate cookies with Dirty Mint chip, oh. uh, snickerdoodle with strawberry, mm-hmm. it was the yeah. Frank Berry, mm-hmm. the mint chip was the minimalism. Uh, we were doing a Richard Meyer lemon ginger cookies and Meyer lemon ice cream. Oh uh, so we were really kind of perfecting, I would say, those three in the beginning, and Dirty Mint was was funny because um, we, we still very much make it now the way we made it like right from the get-go. And the way we made it from the get-go um, kind of 
uh, shifted gears from the original vision for that flavor because we were making it this way with no extract or oils, like no peppermint oil, none of that like kind of more toothpastey, super sweet mint. It was just mint leaves um, in the base of the ice cream. Um, and then you were supposed to, you know, strain those. Um, but one day we were making a test batch of this flavor. And first of all, we ran out of white sugar, white granulated sugar. So we only had brown sugar and we just used a bunch of that in the base. And then that started churning. We added the mint. We got way too lazy to strain the mint. So we had this like brown sugar, mint leaf version of our, you know, vision for dirty mint chip. And we tried it and we're like, this is really damn good. Like, we should just make it like this, you know? Hell yeah. So that's actually how we still make the flavor. Um, were yeah, you we selling it to it. anyone? Like, we, what is, who's it? Is it just you two yeah. just eating it? We were just kind of um, tr- just trialing over and over how to make, like, things the best possible, you know, iteration. And then we would just have friends over and, you know, um, have, like, tasting parties and um, hear their feedback and it was very like that that kind of like inner circle to start. We randomly catered like an event from where Freya was working at the time, uh, a construction, co- like a, a, um, a nonprofit uh, uh, real estate development company. Uh-huh. Um, but there was really no events. There was no real business until Coachella. So, Tell us, yeah. so Coachella was the yeah. launch point of your brand, at least for where people could essentially buy the creations that you were making. Exactly. And what year, what year is that? 2009? 2009. April 2009. Yes. That's even before, like, Coachella is now known as like a really dope food yep. festival as well. But I don't recall no. that being a thing back in 09. It indeed was not. In fact, we were the first uh, food truck to go and sell there. Yeah, How do you, you get into Coachella? Now. We just begged them. We begged them for what? months. We begged them for months. We had both been a bunch of times, Freya, um, Freya and I. Uh, and so we kind of knew the lay of land. We knew like, okay, this is sink or swim. Like, let's go big, you know, or go home. Let's do this major event and see if people are into it. Or then fine, we'll like pack it up. We we didn't, we, didn't, we hadn't like spent that much money, you know, at that point. So this is it. Like, let's see if it's going to pass the test. So we thought, let's just whatever it takes to get in there we tried also different people we knew that were connected to like the promoters and finally i think we just annoyed them so much that they're like okay you can come with your ice cream truck and we'll put you in the campground and um good luck to you you know did you have a truck at the time so i think we had just bought the truck it was twenty seven hundred dollars on craigslist <laughs> which i read that didn't have an engine. no engine we were basically <laughs> buying chrome rims what did yeah. you think you were going to do with a truck with no engine? That's a good question. You're not thinking all these things, you know, like you're 25. You're just, you're just doing. Yeah, you just do. You kind of need a little bit of that. Yeah, sure. But then we then basically figured out um, if we joined AAA Platinum, we got one free 200-mile tow. And a towel. I remember we got a towel and a <laughs> towel. And they uh, basically, you know, the morning of Coachella, we pretended the truck broke down even though it never drove. And they came and they towed us to the desert. I'm sure they were on to us, but they maybe felt sorry for us. I think Freya might have cried as part of the show. <laughs> just um, on the side of the road. It's yeah. like your guys' yeah. house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was just there. Parked. I want to dig into this a little bit. So they're towing you to Coachella, but yes. you still have to set it up in yeah. the ground somewhere. So did the tow truck just pull you into the exact to the spot yeah. where you needed to be and <laughs> they set and, up? They, did. they did, in fact, do that. Yeah. And That's amazing. It, yeah. And it was lucky, actually. So if we think back then, of early Coachella years, um, 
they so you it wasn't like now it's all weekend passes it used to be day passes like way back in yeah. antiquity and so that was one of the few places where you had people staying for the entire weekend which is really what we needed to like build the buzz around the ice cream people were there for in fact five days because you get there a day early to set up your campsite Damn. and then you leave actually the, typically the Monday after the weekend so we really had like a captive audience and the campground was just like there was just it was no man's land so it was perfect the truck's there. We got there. We realized we had no signage, nothing that said what it was or our brand. Oh, God. So I like went to FedEx Kinko's and like printed like <laughs> shitty signage. And then we couldn't even really sell from the truck because it didn't have operable doors and windows either. So we had like a tent next to it. It was. Like, it was why did you even bring the truck? <laughs> it, it was an aspiration, right? It was basically it was such minimum viable product, like the yeah. definition in the dictionary. If you looked up minimum viable product, it is that you know. Coachella year one. Yeah. So how was the response once you're set up with your non-working truck yeah. with non-operable doors and windows yeah. and your tent to the side? And people who don't know what they're doing as far as selling. Oh, well, yeah. Who do you bring? So, like, you don't have any... I'm assuming, like, the way you're budgeting no. all this, you don't have any money. No. So who, no employees. who sells the ice cream? friends who we traded concert tickets to come and help us sell. Well, you oh. could guess, like, we didn't see much of them the whole time. Like, where is everybody, you know? Like, they're at the concert. Great. So, no, we're just... We're slinging the whole time, and um, it, you, it built, like, a following within those few days. People would show up in line at, like, 7 a.m., and we were getting to bed at 3 and 4 in the morning because after the festival and the campground, people are having their own little party and their right. own little rave. So you're getting, like, three or four hours of sleep. You have to sleep by the truck. That was the rules. And then they're, like, waking me up, Natasha, like, someone's in line. He wants his, like, you know, minimalism. He's willing to pay $20, you know, to like, get up and, like, serve the guy. <laughs> And um, and it it you know it wasn't like insane sales. I think maybe we made like five grand, but we thought that was a lot. That paid back everything that it cost to get there. Amazing. Yeah. So was the first day kind of a trickle because people had no idea who yeah. you were. Like, like are they even this? selling anything? Yeah. Like, right. Exactly. Like, <laughs> but it sounds what? like you were in an area where people were seeing you over and over because yes, they're exactly. coming back to mm. the campground. Exactly, which is what we needed. <clears throat> and then you know, so it was sort of like a test of proof of concept like okay this is the thing people like and then after Coachella um, a friend of mine who wrote for Curbed at the time he said if it goes well send me your logo I'll do a piece on on Cool House mm -hmm. so I was like yeah I think we're gonna continue doing this so I sent him like a picture of the logo which is shameful it was not even a vector based file you know, <laughs> like, an architect. like what was that you know and he writes this piece that's not even that it's it's no it's not really like praising by any means it was like if you uh, have nothing to do and you're in LA and you like feel like something weird like maybe check out the Cool House ice cream truck maybe don't and I was like thanks Dan like super helpful but it, it didn't matter it went viral and it the, truly, that article that itself. article yeah and 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 word of the article and word about us that this was gonna exist um you know the whole way home from coachella i was fielding calls from like apartment therapy dwell la times angelino i mean truly that was, was fast blowing up. yes within that day and then freya had an email alert every time we got a new twitter follower thank god we made the twitter page in case this got big and she called me and she's like uh so our twitter account has been hacked um, I'm getting a new follower every second or two. I said, no, that's not hacking. Like, this is <laughs> this is real. Like, it's taking off. I'm getting calls from editors left and right. And it, it's so I'm so glad, like, for no matter what would have happened from there, for the experience in life of, like, knowing what it feels like to be, like, on the other side of 
um, something going viral, how crazy it is and how, how much you can't plan for it. And just, and how much you just have to say like, wow, this is literally the greatest gift. How can we just hold on to like, make this a reality? You know, I know, I know there's serendipity to going viral, for sure. but what, why, if you had to like guess why it went viral yeah right like you were an ice cream concept at Coachella yeah was it that it was a truck and that was the perfect time because at the time it was like maybe you and Kogi pretty much yeah I think there was a couple different things going on I think one was um craft food artisan food how we know it today which we can take for granted a lot more thinking back 10 years not the case there was not necessarily this plethora of like great ice creams made well unique flavors especially novelties which had been particularly bastardized like so shitty you know so one was just I think an overall interest in people wanting to be adventurous and try better things and and willing to go out of their way secondly I think the recession like people were looking for the story of reinvention like a lot of people were getting faced with that being a possibility in their own lives you know Mm -hmm. and and they want the inspirational story and they want they want something that they can relate to and root for even if it never happened to them it's like that fantasy of the thing that they wanted to do but never did so I think that was happening I think the trucks for sure being pioneering in reinventing the ice cream truck for our generation and how much the trucks were forever and in a way always connected to social media especially Twitter when we started out because that's pretty much how you knew where we were Um, so there's all these different factors I think going on it's interesting now it would be like being two young women I think was obviously like you could get that from the story but it definitely wasn't something that that like now I think that's such a down mover like oh I also want to see women behind more brands being leaders doing cool things or gay women I mean this to me this year for pride was so huge with like who are the gay people in business what are they doing you know so it's interesting how the story and the parts that people gravitate to evolve over time but I think those the ones I mentioned first are the things at that moment that really resonated with people that's got to be a best case scenario, right? Yeah. From going to Coachella and then on your way home, there's five <laughs> or six editors from different media companies asking about your business. Yeah. Was it that instant that you did you already know that Cool House was going to be the full fledged? I'm going to pour everything of my life and and potentially like my business partner's life into it. Or did the did the media make that decision for you? Because now we have all this interest. It would be, you know, in some ways, weird to not capitalize yeah. on it because this is a kind of a gift from the from, you know, a higher power that yeah. we don't control any of it. It just <laughs> happens, so we might as well. That's spicy, though. Like, it's a that's great a, question. Yeah. I think it, it's kind of the confluence of both because I think when we started, I couldn't see it nearly as clearly as I see it now. You know, now Vision, you had time for to like understand and perfect your brand and think about what you want and what's what's the strategy. And so I see the vision so much more hammered out now. But back then, there was still the vision in the sense of like, we felt like we were onto something really big. Like I remember telling Freya, like, can't you see this being something huge? Even before Coachella, like it just seems like that kind of thing. The name you know? works. The name the, is the such name. a name. And and like and how about and how about us? Like let's like 
we 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 are like it's like millennials coming up you know like and and we're native angelinos and we care about food and we're reinventing our you, you could sort of there was some self-awareness i think for sure but i didn't see it clearly beyond like you know like i could imagine this going and, and being something big and being a ben and jerry's for our generation like we believe that there was something there i think if the media and and customers and people following on social media didn't instantly kind of show us that spark sometimes the big feeling isn't isn't enough on its own without anything else. I think you need to have all the cues. You need to have like the big idea and the confidence and the will to get there. And you need to have, when you tell people about what you're going to do, you can see the response. It resonates. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they get excited. Like that's really major, which is why I'm a big advocate of like, not keeping things too secretive when you're starting something. I think a lot of people fear being like ripped off or copied like, it's all about execution and you have to be willing to share what you're up to because like the universe will talk to you the the people around you will will show you something important about the the vision well that's a per i mean 2010 2011 2012 is a perfect time for people to be flipping their businesses on their head and become storytellers like that was a perfect time you have twitter you don't want especially if you want to be like the next ben and jerry's you want to be like the dq you want (laughs) to To differentiate from those guys, you have to show who you are as people. And like, why would you be secretive as like, Cool House is this multi-billion dollar operation? No, it's actually like two friends that are now becoming intimate that are also having this amazing ice cream concept. And those are stories that people can tell where if you just came off the block with this pretending to be, it used to be you wanted to pretend to be bigger than you yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. That was like the thing. That was the ethos in marketing. Like yeah. be bigger than you are. And now the authenticity is what's going to sure. shine. And then you can actually become big and authentically big. It's so true. And storytelling, people want to know everything behind the brands that they buy. They're voting with their dollar. They want to feel they can relate. And the more you're willing to share about things, what happens at the office, what happens on the weekend, all of these things, who your family is, I think we're lucky that we're the kind of brand we have a lot to share. And the more we share, I think the more relatable it is because we're making products for, like we are our consumer. We're making products for our own generation. You know, I feel like for me, like, we can look at a lot of data and we can look at a lot of information that gets us to decide maybe a direction we want to go in with a product and a flavor. But a big part of that is me just asking myself, like, would I buy that? Would I get excited about that? Would I understand what that was? So it helps a lot, you know, to have transparency, especially when you just have that connection with who you're talking to. So you come back from Coachella, there's a ton of press, you have fresh new $5,000 bill in your pocket, (laughs) if that's how it works. What does that next like year or two look like? So one of the first calls we got when we came back, and this is also like the market talking to you, because um, we hadn't planned for it. We had planned to um, be basically go out a few nights a week and sell like when bars closed. Yeah. Whatever. That, that was kind of what more or less what we were thinking. We get a call from MySpace. Shows how long ago this is now. <laughs> from Tom. Tom yeah, himself. Tom, <laughs> Tom on the line. Sick. Yeah. And they said, uh, you know, um, how much would it cost for you guys to come and do an ice cream social at our offices? And we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, please hold the line. Um, what, should we, <laughs> what, what should we say? What should we say? Should we charge by the hour? Should we charge? We had no idea. We hadn't even thought about catering. Duh. Mm-hmm. So um, catering, like, 
became and is now it's 95% of our truck business is wow. like wow. hugely kind of like weddings being our number one type of event and now the whole activation thing like we have a huge thing coming up at you know Comic Con for example on Friday where they you know they wrap the truck we make a custom flavor it's in this whole branded package uh, it's there's a social media element there's our servers are wearing certain things we do like photo shoots about how to make the recipe you know it's this whole bigger like the cool house is like a canvas for other brands to come and do something cool with the products we create and the culture we created and the following we have so that that is like and, and truly activations I, I didn't even understand that word or what that was when we started so the whole first year I would say was building kind of the catering business and the vending doing big special events uh, more festivals uh, back then which is something we don't do anymore you could make decent money like in certain spots around the city mm-hmm. on lunch rushes or like you know second Thursday first first Friday we still do in Venice so there's there's still a tiny bit of that but we were really building the truck business for the first really few years and then we started expanding the truck business to Texas and New York as well um, where we still operate so I would say that was like chapter one of, gotcha. of Cool House yeah how soon did you realize that the popping up on a corner in a metropolitan wasn't going to come close to the catering side and the private event side of the business. Um, and, and the reason why I ask that is because we have a lot of restaurateurs that have been in trucks and then gone into brick and mortar. And the, the food truck business is hard. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine how hard it is also when you're serving a product that melts. Um, <laughs> And so when did you start realizing that, yeah, that the catering and private event side yeah. is where that more than just I'm buying a truck and I'm putting on a corner and yeah. I'm going to make it work? Well, I think there's some things um, that are really fortunate about our specific product and brand in terms of the truck model and where you go from there. Um, one is um, uh, as far as operating the truck, yes, it's frozen, but you know, mostly when you're out in the summer selling that's really hot, having actually a cold product, like we're not cooking in kitchens in a Mm. truck where it's just hundreds of degrees and smoky and all that. And it's sort of like limited input, infinite output, you know, 90%, especially on the trucks of what people are getting is cookies, uh, cookie, ice cream, cookie, ice cream sandwich, you know? So um, you're, you have like a really simple, finely tuned menu and you're just like picking what flavor you want. Um, So like more simple, more streamlined than a lot of operations. Um, But I think the biggest thing is that you know, uh, if you think about where you go from the truck, for us, like we do have our scoop shops, which are amazing, and they're innovation centers, and they're community builders, and they're awesome. But I'm not necessarily looking to have like scoop shops in like every town. Like the big scalable side is the grocery distribution, which we'll you know get get into more. But um, like I don't really know of really any other truck that had a product that was really set up to go into grocery the way we did because it makes sense if you have a truck then you open a restaurant and maybe there's some economies of scale in a, a catering arm to a restaurant but then you have a restaurant and restaurants are awesome but they're like a bitch you yeah, know they're, pain, so, in the ass, they're yeah. pain in the ass so you went from like one pain in the ass to another pain in the ass and hopefully you can make it work I hope you do but I think we had like a much kind of bigger picture potential to take this from. Um, And then what I will say as far as like which business is better, vending or catering, I think it was pretty obvious right away that the margin's a lot better on catering because everything's prepaid and you have like one client and everyone's getting it for free. So they're generally like less demanding or less picky about certain things. Or you're going to like a cool film set and it's just cool. 
Um, but I think in the early days, you needed to do the vending to build awareness about the brand. And sure. we very much thought about it that way. And I just think now, not to say that we don't have tons more brand building to do, but like, I don't think we get the, you know, ROI of being on the screen and selling. Like, like we can build the brand in other exciting ways. That's what's got to be challenging for people who are listening at home that are looking for guests like you that are going to give them insight and tips is like, we're saying now that the catering, the special events, now you understand what an activation is and it's <laughs> such a huge part of the business. That's an incredible part of the business. But like, if it wasn't for you just putting your head down and getting out into the streets for like three to five years, you wouldn't, no one would want to activate with you. Yeah. No one would want to hire you for catering or whatever. So that's one of those things. It's like you kind of have to do the low margin stuff at first if you don't have millions of dollars to just throw at advertising yeah. as well. And also it's, it's funny because there's these major, major brands that don't get the activation and the collaboration deals that someone like Cool House would, right? And it's just because you guys spent so much time in the literal streets yeah. building up that cred that now someone like, I could see you know, Netflix wanting to partner with you guys to do stuff and now you're saying you're at Comic-Con. Yeah, yeah, see, there you go. So I think that's really important. Netflix in, competitor, actually. Okay, Hulu. <laughs> so Hulu has, li- Hulu has live sports over at the Cool House, Chuck. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, I just, I don't want to gloss over how important those like early days of just going out there and building a brand and chipping your teeth and so. For sure. And I think also to your point, like it's not just about the building the brand, but the authenticity that it creates in that grassroots startup is what the big brands can't buy. They can only partner to get mm-hmm. that. So like if you're a big brand, what you want to you and you want to feel more accessible literally on the street or just like more kind of like you're you, you're bringing that cool factor, that boutique factor to like something much, much larger then you need a brand like us that literally was built in the street um, to help you do that. And it becomes such a win win because we're getting the huge marketing promotion dollars we can do we can do so much with you know a, a relatively small budget you know these could be a big a big budget for us it could be you know with like 100 grand what we could do for a company like is is massive yeah. for 300 grand we did this whole um, national tour with Delta Amex and created custom flavors and like there's like a I kicked it off with like Andy Cohen and the meat packing in New York and then 12 different cities like and so 300 is a good amount for us like the catering business but I think for a Delta American Express it's a drop in the bucket they're getting a huge amount of work done that no one else could really do and no one else could be that kind of brand um, that they're looking to kind of you know align with so it's it's very win-win the activation thing is like super win-win especially because like the money is in my bank account our bank account not my personal (laughs) account but you know that's I'm a fan of that you're getting paid basically to do marketing you know how or when was the time when you were strolling through a, a grocery store aisle <laughs> and looking at the ice cream section and saying that it's next for a cool house? Yeah, like that, when, it's, that when, it sucks. Someone's <laughs> got to do something big. It's, it's funny because even before Coachella, Freya, she was always more in the beginning the numbers person. So mm-hmm. I didn't really have like a cost of goods for like the sandwiches I was making for friends at, at Disney. And she made us go to Whole Foods and write down what everything costed. And we also walked the freezer aisle and we just saw like there's just nothing there. There was nothing innovative really. Um, the I think the only really kind of cool brand at that 
point was Talenti. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, of course, they've now exited uh, to Unilever. So they've, they like completely grew from there. Um, but uh, for, for us, like we didn't see the, the product being cool. We didn't see it being well made. And we did not feel represented by any of those brands. So I would say out the gate. But then later on, once the truck business was growing, um, even though it was a great business for us and, and very, very special, I think, we still saw that there was limitation on the scalability uh, of what those trucks could be. We're not gonna have trucks in every city. They're very difficult to run. Each market is so different. Each health department's so different. Um, so then we started to think in like 2012, um, there's still a lot of opportunity at grocery. We should revisit that channel and see if there's something there for, for Cool House. So how do, you, how do you do that? Well, in this case, what I did is I literally went to my local Whole Foods, Whole Foods Glendale. Glendale? Yep, Glendale in the house. Um, And I found the guy stocking the freezer aisle. As stocking being S T O C K I N G, you know, the, and S T stalkers. So you stalked the yeah. stalker. I stalked the stalker. Yes. Oh my God. Never put that together. And I said, "What does it take for us to be one of the brands that you put on the shelf, that you stock?" And because um, I will stalk you until you answer me. Um, and um, he said, "You know, let me connect you with the person on the team who does this." They had at the time called the Regional Forager. Good old 2012, like pre, yeah, all the, so much has changed, yeah. yeah, and and you know, like I think there's still this Whole Foods is still in such so special and and such an opportunity for like the cutting edge brands, but it still was a different chapter and even how they ran things back then, it was much more, uh, now it's a bit, quite a bit more centralized. Um, so the regional forager, Kimberly, uh, she, um, her job is to, you know, liaison like, the what are the cool emerging brands in a local market? How do we help them get on the shelf? You know, and I sat down with her and I told her my visit, vision for Cool House, and uh, I said I don't want there to be any compromises for the ice cream sandwiches, the product that we bring to the grocery shelves. Because as a child of the '90s, I feel like there's some PTSD of like the big chef names like Wolfgang Puck. They're doing all this like you know the the fine dining of the time, and by the time they get to the grocery aisle, it's like this you know crappiest like frozen pizza. Like not there's nothing there it's just a name you know that's licensed to like a minimum product and I said no like we there we can take this quality and we can make it so much more you know national she was like okay well you know I said that's going to be a five dollar sandwich and she's like you know the next most expensive novelty is three dollars and I said, well, then people can know that we're the best. Because I believe that also you get what you pay for. And people, especially at Whole Foods, it, it is somewhere where you have the consumer that's going to say, there might be a reason why that one's $5. Like, yeah. I'm going to go in and get the best. I'm going to just go for the very top of the line. And then we picked our five best combinations. And I designed horrible packaging for it that no one could see. Like, so bad. It was like basically they were all like the same like chipboard box and the sandwiches were in plastic in the box uh-huh. and I couldn't afford like any color variation on the box I couldn't afford to make them shiny because it's chipboard it's expensive and the only place to put a sticker to say what the flavor was was the top so then you have like you're uh-huh. in the freezer aisle you can't see what anything is the logo's only on the top it's like like a dull gray line like <laughs> no I wish I had it's like, like a the opposite of how you guys are in the store now. it was like cool house scavenger hunt like who can find them <laughs> You know, but people did. I think the trucks we built, mm-hmm. we built the brand. We had something already there. If we had just gone to grocery, like no, nothing would have really happened. I think, but people knew to look for us. We had the social media presence. We had the PR, and we did this three store test with five sandwiches. And then they sat with us and said, you know, miraculously, people are finding this product. 
you've got to change the packaging, but we're willing to green light it into basically the SoCal region, Southern Pacific Whoa. region. Oh, wow. And that's really how it started. And it's just grown, it's just grown every day since then. I've you heard know? you talk a little <laughs> bit about retail and like packaging, yeah. obviously your design background and all that. And I, I find that fascinating. Jeff and I are geeks about retail shit. So Love it. Um, like how, what did you learn over the next couple of years? Cause obviously you grew from those couple Whole Food stores to like over 7,500 stores. Like, did you always have like the primo location in the store, like right in the middle where your eye, eyesight is? Or how did that change? Like, geek out with us a little bit about how you yeah I think um, when you're local and when it's a market like Whole Foods that is really so much more personal and it still very much is like that I I kid you not like they're they're um, like the we're you know you the feeling you have of knowing the buyer at a, at like these stores like it can vary quite a bit depending on the retailer and Whole Foods it is still quite personal in fact we're gonna like do some sort of ice cream for like the buyer's wedding she requested like 20 Whoa. cups of so it's like it's kind of cool but I think like a market like that like yes you're in, in your, if, if the store's in LA and you're an LA brand and you're a women owned brand or whatever is like the kind of you know component that they're really kind of trying to get behind you are going to get better placement most likely but you know we're we're still at a size in a lot of stores like that could still be a struggle if you're going to like a, a Kroger in the Midwest it just may not be possible I think what's most important is to just not go in with um, less than let's say like five SKUs um, ideally like a shelf seven so mm-hmm. if a store says to you that's a major account that you've been dreaming of you know hey we're gonna bring you in but we can only put in two spots at this point you might just say no because it's really? still it, it like there's still kind of um a shakedown with getting like the best spot, you know, like the the biggest multinationals will pay basically slotting to have those best spots and they have their own fulfillers who go and make sure that they're stocked and they're there and they're in the middle. We can't afford to do that yet, far from that. But at least if you have pretty much a shelf presence, you're probably gonna be okay. Where you're really gonna get screwed is like, you don't have good placement and you have one or two SKUs. It's like, you might as well not be there because you're, you're gonna spend a lot to be at any of these stores. You need to be well represented. What are you spending on for the people that are just kind of unaware, right? Because I think the our audience is gonna be like, you have product in stores and the store bought them from you. Like, so what are what are you spending on to be in store for someone that has never put a brand in store? It varies hugely store to store. There's some that are, um, like Publix, I would say, costs a lot to be there. They are masters of the BOGO, buy one, get one. Mm. But it works, you know? When Which we, you pay for, right? You pay so for. Because people have to understand at home yeah. saying BOGO, buy one, get one. But Cool House has to front yeah. a pint or whatever the product exactly. is. Exactly, that is coming out of your pocket. But if you are if you have the bandwidth and the team and the knowledge to be on top of the numbers, which now there's like a you know there's such a, um, a tipping point with all these things because we can also like afford to buy the data to like really read what's happening at those stores. So if you can say we we went pretty deep on that you know to do a bogo at a Publix, let's say, but we have representation on shelf, so we have right now um, two sandwiches and seven pints. So there's enough for people to try because if you only had two things, like what's the point? They're not they're not going to be new things for them to really discover anyway. There's mm-hmm. only those those few. Um, we have enough on shelf, and then can we measure? Can we prove? that when we did this BOGO, 
uh, that what we created was not only like a blitz in sales because of the promotion, but after there's a major notable lift in the people who continue to buy it because they tried it, they loved it, now they're hooked, it's worth it. And also a store like Publix, they're just a good partner. Like they they deliver on the timing and, and they deliver on, you know, keeping up their end of the bargain. They are stores that people love. Yeah. If you, any, any, if you know anyone from like the Southeast, when you say Publix, they, they, yeah, they geek like out. they go insane. People here haven't even heard of it. Markets are very still regional, except for the very few that are national banners. Um, so it's it's expensive, but it's worth it. Then there's going to be some stores where you're like, we paid a lot for marketing, and we just don't see it there. It's either not the right product mix, it's not the right consumer, whatever it may be. You need to cut the cord on those quickly. You need to be spending the money where you're having really big numbers, where the marketing works. Like concentrate your efforts on less, at least while you're smaller, yeah. and then you know, kind of, I think, start with that strategy and grow from there. So that note that you mentioned earlier of like, if if a store is only going to give you maybe two SKUs in there, like yeah. almost don't be in there. Is that because like it I would? Think so if it if, if you're especially if you're not like local, you know, right. if you were like you know in twenty stores and you're starting out in Orange County and you can go like that might be another story, you know. Mm. But like yeah, if you're going to be in some in North Carolina in some store and no one knows who you are, like probably yeah. not even worth it. And if they catch you with like if they don't like one of those flavors, yeah. and then sales at that store teeter off, that store's not going to give you another chance. I'd imagine it's so true. And the other tricky thing is. Typically, in the first year to be at almost any big store, like any conventional store, as we would call it, um, you pay slotting. Like Whole Foods, like doesn't actually do slotting. Like there's no cash component, at, like that you're actually paying. But they might ask for like a free fill, let's say. So there's still like a little bit of spend to get there. But at a conventional store, you're paying to be there. But really, only the first year. So it's kind of in their incentive to continue to bring in new brands because they're going to get all this like cash up front. What? Wow. I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. so so brands like Cool House yeah. or other CPG stuff, they pay for the st- the spots in store? It's essentially yes. You and have then, to. So then do you pay it's a and shakedown. then Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. So yeah. you're so you're pitching them to pay them. Right? Well, because they buy like, your They're going to green light you, and then they're going to say, well, it's going to cost you this much to be on shelf. And um, it can come in different ways. It's typically like you're paying into that. Um, but it can also be like you have to buy an ad in this mm. issue, and you have to pay for this program. So there's a whole, you know, but but like you're kind of realizing, like, what's your cost per SKU per store to get there in the first place? And then that comes down, like, it's it costs the most the first year. So like I said, it's like it's in their interest to keep. Gotcha. If you're not good enough, goodbye. Going to bring in the mm. new brand that's going to pay. You know, um, it's a very yeah, it's the, it's a bit archaic in that way. So do, do you feel like your brand gets mafiaed or strong armed in that way? And I, and maybe that's too far, but <laughs> that's what it feels like to me. Is like that's the grocery because world. I think the perception is you go to a store and you plead with them to shelve your product because you think that they can make money on the sale yeah. and and you can make money on the wholesale, right? But like, that's a completely different world that even Eli and I aren't super aware of. Yeah, that's crazy. It's more of like, come to us, we're gonna charge you fees, we're gonna make you do deals that promote that product that you eat the cost of, and then we're hoping that product brings in consumers that buy other shit around our store. Yeah, and hopefully that they also buy your product. I mean, like you can win, but the cost and the risk, this is why it's so hard to run a food business. Like it's very, very difficult. And this is also why the vast majority of the stores 
you know, in this country have the same, you know, biggest brands. Mm. So it's kind of like that. Uh, it's kind of like an upside down, you know, um, like, like, you know, pyramid, basically. Um, it's changed over time because I think uh, it took the consumer demanding, you know, artisan, more unique, maybe more local and wanting to have those represented on their shelf to get buyers to say like, okay, fine, if I can make more money off of it, of course, you sure. know, but it is very much, um, there's, there's a sort of algorithm to like what's possible. And it takes a lot to break into those tiers to really have the representation. Um, and to be able to, um, you know, invest in, in the marketing, to be part of these programs. And um, then when you're ready to grow more, to even have the bandwidth, to have the team, in place to do it i mean it's a it's a very very difficult business because that's what you haven't even talked about yet you haven't even talked about the manufacturing the transportation logistics and keeping that product on the shelf yeah was that something i mean serving ice cream out of trucks is very different than going through a government approval to serve stuff on a shelf yeah was that something where you were taking the success the financial success of the trucks and just leveraging and taking a big risk on grocery or was that a decision of i'm gonna bring in partners or financial partners or take a line of credit to build this infrastructure because i i believe that we can be there what was the situation well so i think you know right out the gate actually for coachella um we we started we basically realized like we cannot make these cookies and ice cream in our own kitchen for the amount of people that we want to feed so we actually really early on used co-packers which is like we develop a recipe it's ours and um, we need you, you we need you to be our partner in how we make it and making it at a certain scale and also sometimes cash flowing cash flowing through the co-packer like uh, you know they um, we've sort of slowly kind of brought some of the ingredient pur- purchasing back to our side but for many many years they buy all the raw materials you just buy the finished product. So it saves you some of those cash flow days of when you'd actually have to be out the cash before you can start making money on what you've made. Um, so it help, really helpful for startup and really helpful to have a partner with the know-how and how to make things, how to store things, because a co-packer, as they're called, really are your partners. Mm-hmm. So even with the trucks, we still had systems that were better built for growth mm-hmm. in place so that when we went to grocery, we could have that conversation with the co-packer. Can we pre-make the sandwiches and pack them? And can we work with you on, you know, what what are all the kind of permits and, and what are the inspections that we need to make this possible? Um, so I think that was a start. And when we really wanted to go big in grocery, uh, was the same time that we were building the flagship shop in Culver City. And we started, you know, we got we signed a lease there and we started to kind of go through the construction process. And then we, you know, basically basically got greenlit for that trial in Whole Foods. And we did definitely say at that point, like, if we're going to do either of these things and definitely both, we definitely need some money. So then we did actually go and do an angel round um, and it was a really um, super helpful uh, to do with this particular investor whose name is Bobby Margolis. Um, he had done Cherokee jeans for those children of the 90s yeah. at Target. So okay. Like fashion like Titan, but just like such a business savvy guy and someone who really believed on the wholesale side and the scalability. And so he was not only dollars, but, you know, a real mentor coach in terms of building this business. And um, he grew his business at a time when everything was about EBITDA and, you know, being very fiscally responsible to the bottom line. Today's brands, 
because par- partially because of what I just described, what it costs to get to the top, are generally much more looked at for growth as the key optic than necessarily um, making Profit, money or yeah. even breaking even. Um, or just, yeah, you might have tens of millions in debt, but look at the growth, right? Yeah, I feel like yeah. that's always the conversation. Even public companies are having now is just oh my don't, god, don't, tech is don't just don't worry about the debt. They're, and they're not even like making money companies. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Right. like like literally, like there could be no revenue and just you know like users and ads, like not even on the, in the thing, like a, an idea for an ad, and that can be worth how many hundreds of million dollars, and you get all that money, and you're literally just like not. There's been like revenue. three IPOs this year of companies that are not profitable. Yeah, yeah. Like public offer. Like Uber doesn't make money. <laughs> Uber loses money. At, and it, even at the scale, that's yeah, that. Which is, yeah. if you're and, not going to make money at that scale, when are you going to make money? Well, it, this is somewhat of a side tangent, but the idea that like we have free rides through Ubers, through uh, Lyfts, through birds because of VCs. Like if we have to thank them yeah. for any, like a lot of those like soul sucking VCs, like we can thank them for the, the very cheap affordable <laughs> rides. If we had to pay living wages to the people that are actually driving Ubers, the gig economy, Ubers would be $30 for every couple they would minutes. would cost what taxis yeah, cost. But they're subsidized by VCs for the hopes of some cash out at the end that, yo, Uber's been around damn near a decade yeah. now. It's still not making money. Or a way for to pivot. Like now they're an LTL and freight. You know, like, yeah, yeah. what else can they expand to? It's, it's like the... The, the driving is like the lost leader. You yeah. Know? They'll, yeah, they'll make money once they get rid of the human part of it, which is on their way. That's their that's their model is like, it's expensive for us now because a human's driving you. It won't cost us anything once they're all Teslas. So um, crazy. But how, Natasha, how did you- How, how, did how about you, a self-driving ice cream truck? Anyone? There you go. That's yeah. money. Yeah. No, I, I like my people. That's the thing about service. <laughs> like you need, you know, you need like so much of it is the culture and the interaction with Cool House. It's like, it's and it's funny. We're we're in a way uh, insulated from. I mean, we're we're a very modern company. We're a very cutting edge company. But there are some things like even like e-com, which is no new concept at this point, but like ice cream is one of the last frontiers where it's just not an e-com business. Like it is the most perishable thing pretty much you can buy. So you want to go and get it and then eat it right away, like in that spot and have that interaction. So it's kind of cool that in some ways we're protected from like, it's so timeless. And then in other ways, obviously you have to adapt and you have to like take in new technology and this and that, but it's kind of nice that it's like a little bit stuck in the way it is to some degree. Yeah. I know there are thousands of listeners on our podcast that theoretically would want to meet an investor at some point. What was that courting process like for you? And was it, did your investor find you? Did you find them? Could you explain yeah. that a bit more about and what maybe what our listeners can learn of how they might be able to find the investor for their idea? Sure. Well, I would say the number one uh, for that angel round, because now we've raised quite a bit more money since then, so I can talk more to the details of that. But um, the number one thing I think that made the angel round possible is that Freya and I were just talking to kind of everyone we knew about the fact that we were raising capital to grow the business. And and we had an exciting brand, and there's buzz, there's something to talk about, and so there's big ways to grow it. So it just like, the more you can kind of put it out there, 
Like, you just never know where that connection is going to come from because then, of course, my parents knew that we were looking to raise money. And he was having, uh, my dad was having lunch with um, Bobby Margolis. My dad's an architect as well. And Bobby was his longtime client. He built his house. So they were, they've remained friends. They were having lunch. And, um, you know, Bobby had mentioned that he just started a fund with his family, like a, a small fund, uh, his, da- his daughter and son-in-law. Um, also were involved in potentially looking for some deals to do. And my dad said, well, you know, Tosh and Frey are, um, they're actually raising money. They they have this cool, they start with the ice cream trucks. They just launched at Whole Foods. They're building a shop. Maybe you should talk to them. And that ended up being the way that it was Whoa. all connected. And we literally had, um, I think, three meetings with Bobby and his son-in-law, who became like a president of Wholesale for quite a bit, is no longer in the day-to-day. But all, what was good about Bobby is it came with like also additional manpower, someone to help just literally there's so much to do at a growing company but it was three meetings where we the first one we really talked about the vision and some of the numbers then we got into the plan a bit more and the third was more like okay what's their role what what do they see as what they can do so i would say like kind of a red flag if people are you're courting them or they're courting you forever it, mm. it can obviously happen it may not may not be the right timing but i think sometimes like it becomes just a huge time suck and people at the stage we were at then, which was literally having trucks in three cities and a lot of buzz behind the brand. But if it's sort of like you're in or out at that point, like there's not that many spreadsheets that we're going to create for like that level of investment. Like it should be fairly, it shouldn't be this super sophisticated like process in that stage. So Mm. one thing is like, if it's like endless, endless questions or endless needing answers on this, like maybe time to move on. Like someone should be like, I believe in you or I don't at that stage. Later on, because we've raised... um, you know, fairly substantial private equity dollars. That's a, it becomes quite a different dance. Um, I would say uh, I've done one round with a banker and one without, and I actually liked the without round much much more. And we kind of knew then like how to do our own like discussion, and I think how to to vet a deal like the best that we we could without having to give additional you know uh, percentage of the deal to a banker. Like nothing against them in general, just yeah. we had at that point the contacts. And um, I think it's so important just, we are really big on vision always. I think you're really, it's about getting excited and about them being excited about like the ultimate dream for this company. Um, I think it's about totally being yourself and being really honest about what you want and who you are in the company and where you think it stands. And then really making sure that they also are partners um when we were raising private equity money we're not looking for just like here's a check and goodbye and good luck like we knew we needed help like this business is difficult this business is it's very capital intensive it it, there's just so many facets to it so we looked for um investor team that had like specifically operating experience that they weren't just financial guys um, that they have had people, they've had people on their team who have been there, who have been on the other side. So they have the network, they can relate. We can really kind of hash it out in a different level than just looking at, you know, what are the finances behind this. So it's just like there's different things at different stages, but the the biggest thing is I think vision, and especially as the founder, like yeah. that's one of the number one things you can bring to the table. Well, I have a question too because I heard you and Freya had a bit of a a tiff at one point. Did she, is it true that she was like, yo, 
you suck at CEO. You <laughs> suck at what you do. Like what? Tell me, tell me about that moment because she's is she still on the day to day? She's not on the day to day. Okay, yeah. okay I got to hear more about this. She's the first lady of Cool House, as I like to say. <laughs> she's not on the payroll, but you know we're married, so she has my ear, and yeah, she knows everything that goes on pretty so much. What what happened? Was that like in 2015, 2013, actually? Jeez. Okay, yeah, so she's been kinda, gone of the day to day longer than she worked there, which is crazy at this point. But she, it's she's still you know very much um, actively you know. In, in the know of, of everything we're doing, as I said, but, um, she, okay. So, uh, we started the company together. We did the angel round and that brought in, um, at our, at our time, like a third at the time, excuse me, a third partner, Dan Fishman, who came with Bobby Margolis as like president of wholesale. So it was me and Fran, Dan and, um, growing the business. And I think just basically at like when we did the angel round is when I feel like I really became CEO. Like we were just kind of calling ourselves co-founders before that. Yeah. Freya becomes COO, Dan president. And, and um, then, so then it was like, she reported to me basically, you know, mm. and there would be things that I would ask for from her that sometimes, you know, we're a married couple. She just wasn't in the mood to give them to me, or she didn't think I was asking the right questions or whatever it may be. And, I think, you know, you get to a point where the relationship becomes less, uh, it's harder to kind of uh, draw the line in the sand with the professional and the personal. So that started kind of bubbling up a lot more often. And I think there was some resentment out of like, my world of Cool House is, you know, the branding, the marketing, the PR, the events, like what in theory you could say is more of the fun stuff, even though it still requires an incredible amount of work and discipline. And she's running ops and finance and she's just starting to feel like it's it's dragging down on her. And also maybe she could hire someone who could do this better. Like, does it need to be her doing this? And then I think also um, she just was kind of becoming burnt out. She, uh, she is someone and she's gotten much better about this, I think, like, where the business is so personal, like anything that would go wrong in the business, like we would be at dinner and someone would tweet that like they couldn't find the truck, where's the truck, like this is this is like, you know, bullshit. And it would like ruin the whole dinner for her. You know, mm -hmm. like she, it was really hard for her to separate the emotions from that. So all these things are bubbling up and then, yeah, we're at, we're at dinner one night, which we would go, commonly go to this restaurant, it was right near our apartment at the time. And we would basically like valet the truck um, and like take in the cash box and that would be like part of our budget for the dinner, like, <laughs> off the record so uh, so off the record here and we just we're, we were in a and basically an argument that just um, it wouldn't end like before that we would we would argue a lot but we'd always get to higher ground and the arguments would be a good thing because you um, you like you, you hash out the discussions that need to happen and if you can't hash it out with like your partner like you're in trouble in a different way like yeah. you, you need to have fierce conversations you know and so um, this argument though it wouldn't end we could not get to higher ground and then Freya just basically got so tired of it she was like I don't back you as CEO anymore like you don't know what you're doing wow. and then one of us left the restaurant and one of us followed. We don't even remember who was, which was which. Just blacked out. That's it. We're blacked yeah. out. We're blacked out drunk from, you know, like Sangiovese wine at Angelini. <laughs> um, and uh, we get home and um, Freya writes an email to Dan, the third partner. And she says, I don't like, I, I don't back Natasha anymore as CEO. Like, I don't want to work for her. And I was like, see, you work for me. She's like, for slash with, and then sends it. And somehow we just knew, like, this is the end. There was no going back. Like, you know, you could be like the next day, like, oh, I'm sorry I sent that email. No, this was the end. And basically, it just became clear it just wasn't uh, productive anymore. And I don't think we were, like, 
okay, it's either you leave or we're getting divorced. We didn't get to that point, which was good. But it was definitely time for her to take a break. And it ultimately made me better as a CEO. I think I was leaning on her too hard for some things. And I think um, I did need to do probably some work on evolving in different aspects of the business. And her moving on made it easier for me to do that. And um, she really needed the break. Like she literally just watched like Law and Order SVU every episode <laughs> for like six months straight and just completely, you know, decompressed. You guys were married and living together at the time? By then we were married yes so yes. this is like you're talking about writing the email she went back to your joint home yeah it was writing this email yeah. an email to a partner invalidating your your like yeah you, the current ceo which is a yeah. partner that's a deal breaker so, for some people so how did how how did you recover personally yeah and then, yeah um and you're obviously still the current ceo yeah um but was there any recovery that you had with to to now have with other partners that receive this fire branded message from <laughs> a person that founded the company with you i remember dan asked me the next day are, are you okay <laughs> you know and i said yeah it's gonna be fine i mean you know we we had already been through so many stresses together so we knew how to you know the the cup would overfloweth and you kind of you kind of deal with it and i think we were really bonded and and really are like soulmates so it's like it takes a lot you know to to break that down um and you know lesbians get into dramatic arguments we do kind of do this it's two women okay like um but i think i think for me uh and i think maybe for me there's a little bit of um uh i like i guess i like the challenge like her saying that didn't make me like think like oh like like i can't believe you said that like i'm not gonna be with you anymore it was more like you know i know that I can be a great CEO and I am going to do that. And I and maybe like part of what works for us professionally is she like gives me that kick in the ass that I need. Like she knows, like when she tells me I've done something great, I know she really means it. Cause she will definitely tell me when it's not good, mm. you know? <laughs> so it was like, more inspiring. She has me wrapped around her finger, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm always looking for her approval and her praise. Like, do you like, what do you think? Do you like this? I do a good job, you know, like, but yeah, it's like that, that's a dynamic that we just have. So it just works, but I don't, it's not for everybody. It's just not. Yeah. That's, that's a dope outcome of that type yeah. of situation yeah. where it was more overall inspiring for yeah. you. And I, cause I did read it made you you felt a sharper CEO, yes. realized what you were missing, what you were doing well, and yes. really just catapulted and then cool. Yeah. Now it's way bigger. Yeah, exactly. I think then also like a few years later, she's like, I think that you couldn't grow this company to more than 25 million with you as the CEO. And I was like, okay. Now she's like, no, oh, I think you could do it. 50 million. You know, like she's always, she's always giving me those increments next, to like, yeah, try what, to impress her. What is that next? <laughs> what is that next? check mark for cool house and you personally i think um i think that you know with the kind of run rate we're at and, and where we're going and all the new stuff we're launching right because we now as you mentioned like we started with the sandwiches we've really we grew a great footprint for those then we started doing pints which it's weird to say now but we never thought we would do we thought we're like we're novelty we're ice cream sandwiches we really proved that we can hang and succeed majorly in the pint section like the pints at Publix, the pints at Ralph's, like there's some accounts that are amazing, you know? And so I think first was like the extension of like, we're not just a one trick pony. Now we look back at the sandwiches and we see also like a single serve 
six ounce sandwich it's it's no joke i mean these are substantial they're amazing in a certain kind of store especially a store where you go in and you buy like a kombucha and an ice cream sandwich and like Mm. dark chocolate or you know like a small basket and you're gonna kind of paying more per item they're amazing in um a convenience store which is something we haven't even rolled out yet they're amazing for food service you know because you can open it and put it and cut it and dipping sauce dessert at a restaurant like there's uh, stadiums, you know, mm. uh, we're at Madison Square Garden, we're at the Forum, we're at the Hollywood Bowl, we're at the Greek Theater. So there's all these like places that that's great. But I think now we're about to launch um, a multi-pack mini ice cream sandwich. So a three pack, smaller, that's a whole, opens up a whole different can of worms in the best way. Because a lot of people are going to go to like, more like those Ralphs and Safeways and want something that they're stocking up on that's a little bit cost less per unit for the whole family. Right. So that's going to be like, I think a major, it sounds simple, but these kind of little changes are huge. And then we have our dairy-free line that came out, which is like kicking ass, like yeah, dairy-free sandwiches. It was so cool. I, I'm so glad we did this. So I, for me, again, it comes from like sometimes you see the plant-based food category was growing. But for me, I just more noticed like I have no problem with dairy. I love dairy. But I, we were starting to have a lot of things in the fridge that are the plant-based, are the you know um, vegan, are the dairy alternative. The same grocery basket, you could easily see the whole milk, an oat milk, a pea milk, a, you know, and we particularly loved Ripple actually. Mm-hmm. And so um, we, I started to think, you know what? I think if we'd went dairy free or vegan alternative of the sandwiches and pints, it's not only for the people who can't have dairy or the people who are vegan, it's for the flexitarian which is now how I would refer to myself, someone who loves dairy, but who's just looking for, maybe they feel it's different or it's lighter or it's more adventurous, whatever the reason. Um, So developing dairy-free was a huge challenge because in ice cream, you can totally experiment and do crazy things, but at the end of the day, you're always gonna have, you know, cream, milk, sugar, like maybe eggs, but there's a few ingredients that are like already fully set in stone that are kind of like 90% of that, you know, ice cream product. Dairy-free was like total blank canvas. Like, what is this even going to be made from? We tried a bunch of different things. I really saw there was no, um, uh, like, the peas and pea protein base ice cream. I felt like there was a lot of coconut, cashew, almond. Coconut, to me, it always tastes like coconut when you're done Mm. eating it. Cashew and almond, um, I think the texture is not there, and then you lose the nut allergy people. So we're like, let's try with peas. And we just made this awesome base thank you to my r&d queen courtney mcbroom who's she's so talented we just worked and worked and worked um got it how we wanted it and then we started developing you know layering flavors and textures on top of things um some that are you know more classic some that are unique because we also saw like there's not that exciting of flavor variety in dairy free yet right and then let's do the sandwiches let's make an amazing dairy free or vegan cookie it's technically vegan but we call the line dairy free because yeah. we actually found that you lose people get scared of vegan if you say that even though yeah like that, that connotation we ran into that like on the website like yeah. how do we if we say something is vegan and it is vegan we lose a good amount of our audience that are just wow. pissed they're just like they have this inherent they like, put up steak memes in the yeah, comments like, like immediately they don't even know what the article says they're just immediately wow. being like f you guys for covering this and we're just like what and then we can Haters. use then we toy with like 
do we call it plant-based? We're just trying right. to find the most accessible way to explain stuff to our audience. Yeah. And you must run into that with yeah. the actual packaging. packaging. Yeah, yeah. That we found by far dairy-free resonated. They feel like it's going to taste better. And also, some people are just not looking as vegans. They're looking as they just can't have, you know, they're lactose intolerant. They're lactard, <laughs> um, as we like to call it. So I think it's, it's just, we actually did some consumer research on that, which is how we got to that. And I think it was the right move. But um, the dairy-free free sandwich the cookie is so good mm-hmm. and so there's nothing like that there's no like this like the way we are the ice cream sandwiches are so iconic for us to do that with the dairy alternative that's at every whole foods globally and they just are flying off the shelf they're selling as well if not better in some cases than the chocolate chip vanilla sandwich there which is our best item in the whole country oh. so there there's something I'm, huge there i'm so excited the listeners of this podcast know i don't fuck with dairy anymore because okay. it's been messing up my stomach yeah. And I've been, I've been just always looking for the next thing, and I, and I didn't know where that was, yeah. and now that I know it's at Whole Foods, is that's gonna help me discover that because yeah, no, I'm, I'm awesome. super excited about that product personally. How, how do you feel about the other? Better for you, quote unquote, ice creams in the aisle right now because they're big. They're gaining more and more yeah. shelf space. Frankly, like I have my thoughts on them. I don't think the taste is that good yeah i mean if you if you hate your life and yourself you might like them no i'm just kidding um i think that uh look i think eat that halo top i I didn't say it i didn't say it yeah um i think that uh a lot of the better for you the issue with it is um it's like tends to be trends that come and go you know it's um it's no sugar, and then it's more about keto, and then it's more about different fat. There's just, it's, it becomes less about brand and kind of long term, playing the long game. Because I, I think at Coolest, like we are trying to grow aggressively, and we are, but we are playing the long game. Like we're building a product that will never go out of style. But I think that the better for you is less about long game. It's more about kind of flash in the pan with dietary fads. However, and so I, and I and I don't think that if you if you want to eat something delicious, like very rarely, like there's just like sometimes you just have to go and eat the delicious thing and actually be satisfied from it instead of trying to have ice cream but no sugar and just feeling weird you know like whatever but but that's that's another story i think what's good about it is that it brings people to the ice cream aisle that may not otherwise be looking and so we do see like actually again in some of the consumer research we did like there's actually a percentage of like Halo Top folks who will then say, you know what, I'm kind of done with having that. Like, I'm just going to have real ice cream. And now they're buying a certain type of brand or they're going to the freezer aisle more. So they've already noticed us. Or maybe we were having a, you know, a sale then. So they just kind of caught their eye or flavor caught their eye or they heard about us. So as long as it just brings people to the freezer aisle who are just willing to try different things and maybe just realize that it's just better to have something delicious and, and be satisfied, then I'm okay with it. You Do know? you think V? Vegan doesn't fall into the same category as the better for you. High, one has high protein, one has low cal, one yeah. has this. Are they different? It could for some people, but I think like vegan, it can be a totally decadent dessert. It can be richer than the mm-hmm. non-vegan version. Um, I would say, you know, they're they're not defined terms. I would say some people even consider super premium craft artisan ice cream with simple ingredients to be a better for you also. Sure. Because it's not got, you know, like it's just made well and it's it's sourced well and all those things. So it just kind of depends on your definition of it. But um, I think that people, no matter 
no matter the case, people have, uh, have changed so much about the way they eat and are willing to just have indulgent things in moderation. Um, I will say, I think people are willing to have our dairy-free maybe more days, like more often, mm. you know? So there could be something in that that they're like, okay, it feels lighter. I'm going to, I'm going to, it doesn't have to be like as much of an occasion. Tasha, when you walk down the grocery aisle, do you, as a consumer, feel like the ice cream market is saturated? Um, I guess in, in the U.S., in a grocery store, you have to show me a category that isn't saturated. Sure. It's just kind of how it is. Um, I think there's always room for, for newness and new things. Um, and I think there's some pieces of the grocery world that have changed, as I mentioned, to allow for that to happen more often, even at like a really large-scale grocery store. Um, but it's something you have to think about when you innovate. Like, where is this going to go? What Someone has to leave for me to get in there. Um, the only other way around that is, you know, are you um, offering up freezers for a grocery store to put your product in? Like, and that's a huge cost. And, and then who's going to stock them? Who's going to make sure they work? You know, so there's there's challenges there too. But I think you do have to go in assuming it's saturated and think about why would someone then choose this? Why would the buyer put this on the shelf instead of something else? You have to like be have such a strong game to make that, you know, to, to, to create space for yourself. Some of the biggest stories and personalities all time that we've covered here at Food Beast um, are ice cream related. Hmm. So whether it was the afters milky bun, uh, Halo Top becoming the number one pint um, for a while. Crazy. Uh, <laughs> Wanderla Creamery's white rabbit flavor. People just can't seem to get enough ice cream. And it's one of the reasons yeah. why like, we could feel very confident in going four or five back-to-back ice cream shows because people <laughs> love ice cream. Yeah. What is it about ice cream that gets people going, in my opinion, so much more than other types of food? Because you can lick it and it's chill. <laughs> but maybe you don't want to be the licking man. You saw that. <laughs> oh, I heard, oh, yeah. oh, our our yeah. pints are sealed. Yo, what our was that? I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, that just was someone happened. licking... Ice yeah. cream yeah. and putting it back. Man. Yeah, that's awful. Yeah. yeah, that's awful. Yeah, dang, where to bring down the mood? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, no, but you have sealed pints, and our our seals say amazing things. Also, one says "rip my top off." <laughs> I love that one. Or like they're all like it's between you and me. No one has to know. They're very sultry, you know. So okay. there's like it's like not only are they sealed, but like do something cool with the seal, you know. Um, I think that ice cream, one, there's like memory, nostalgia, you eat it your whole life, you love ice cream your whole life. Um, It's like being an adult but being a kid at the same time, especially with like today's world of flavors and alternatives and all that. I think there's something about it that like, um, especially just the ice cream, like I, it almost doesn't count as like it's like it's like this liquid thing that melts that just is I don't know it just goes down so easy I find like it weirdly it is rich it is decadent but I think like if I think about like having like a slice of cake that feels like a much different like I don't know like that's gonna it's like I'm a gonna mental hurdle nap. yeah right yeah. right ice cream like I don't know it's a bit more balanced like it's got like the protein and it's got the and then you're not just, having enough ice liquid. cream apparently <laughs> yeah. yeah I know I need to work on that. I don't know. So there's something about that. Like, what other dessert is like that? You know, mostly we think of dessert and we think of, like, there's the cupcake and there's the, you know. And we do have, obviously, cookies in our ice cream sandwiches. But I think ice cream is just, like, in another, its own food science category. That just, I don't know. And, like, um, it's soothing, the coldness. It's it's just got all these other layers to it that I think are a bit unusual. 
I like that. It's tied to the emotive qualities. Like I, I don't. Yeah, I'm just trying to get to why the because like, I understand the emotive qualities because when I discovered that I couldn't have ice cream in the same way because of what it was doing to me, like that was a devast- it was a devastating moment. Yeah. And normally in those moments, I would turn to ice cream to get me through that moment, and I. But it was the cause, right? That's hilarious. Like, what are you going to cry with? And, and yeah. exactly. Celery? And so, but it's like, I don't know what it is. About, I mean, it, it is just, it is amazing. And I don't know if it's the temperature, the texture, the flavor. I don't know if it's the medium. I don't know yeah. what it is. But it's, it's all of it all, rolled it's up. It's all of it, I guess. It's all of it rolled up. And it's interesting because, you know, we talk about in my world a lot, like occasion. Like, what's the occasion of use for blank? Like, the occasion for pints is quite different than a sandwich. A pint is a bit more of, like, your alone time. We, we call it, like, quiet the world stops. Like, you can, like, it's like you're an escaping through the pint. And everything else can like become silent and it's just you. The sandwich is much more of like a share, you know, share, celebrate. Maybe the pine I see is more like a weekday evening, and I see a sandwich is more of like a week um, end day party. Mm. Like it's all very different depending on what the ice cream is. And then, you know, now we're working on bonbons, we're working on reinventing oh. the Choco Taco as a taquito. So those are going to have whole different uses. So I you're think. just trying to reinvent the ice yes, cream category. Yes. yes. That to do, you asked an earlier question. Like, I want to reinvent, I want, especially novelties. There's so much to do. We're going to just grow this brand to be the household brand of our generation. Oh my gosh. Um, when is the. You know, if we become really rich doing that, like, oh well. Yeah, why not? <laughs> when is the Choco Taquito coming out? 2021. Okay. We already have all our innovation launching for 2020. We have to work so far in advance timelines because of grocery stores. You reset once a year in like May, March, April, May. So mm. you, you know, sorry. Um, but uh, 2021, it will come faster than you think. Don't you worry. And we'll do dairy-free of both bonbons and taquitos. That's you. what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's news. what I'm talking about. Hashtag food Yo, news. Yo, the taquito. Is it taquitos? This is why you stay to the end. This is why you stay to the end of the ketchup podcast. Yeah. Yo, people been staying, bro. You also owe people a lot of gift cards from last week's <laughs> no. review. They've been coming through. Yeah, I They've know, been coming man. through. We, we got them. You guys are in contact. But how do we feel? This is a fun podcast. This, Natasha, this is really, really fun. I had a great time. Yo, let's do, let's do the air bumps. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Natasha, thank you for coming through. Of course. Continued success to you. And uh, Jeff, how you feel? And guys, look out for a cool house in, in uh, mm-hmm. a grocery store near you, as well as on the streets in, in Dallas and Los Angeles and New York. Exactly. Thank you guys so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. I love the fist bump at the end. Too. I like it. We <laughs> usually start with really it. really into it. He's, he's like a big fist bump guy. Is he a basketball player? He will be. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. Oh, yeah. he will. Oh, about. that was that was yeah. very. Well, I saw a picture clear. of you and and him, and he was and he had oh, his basketball. Because you, you play. Did you play did you basketball? basketball? Yes. yes. Damn. All right, we're gonna we start all, the podcast over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is not just a basketball podcast. That's awesome. I don't know. We we will not go so far into basketball. You'll come back. Okay, <laughs> I hope. Look forward to that. I hope. <laughs> all right, guys. Have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank Bye. <laughs>